Hey, so Dr. Claire, I have a question for you. Mm. Do you think anybody reads poetry anymore? No. Is poetry dead? I think it's dead. <laughs> Why we is it do? dead? Why don't people read it? I don't know. I I I read it. I'm one of those. I said this in my lecture, but I had this just wild-eyed, long-haired hippie teacher in high school who loved poetry. Aww. Bare feet. That'll give it to you. You know, you grew up in Western Oregon, and uh, you know, Dead Poet Society. She was reminiscent of that That's great sweet. Robin Williams uh, character in that movie. But yeah, poetry's powerful. My love is a red, red rose. You know, I mean, the stuff, it touches the heart, moves the affections yeah. for some reason. I read it. Do you? Yeah, I do. You do? I do. Oh yeah. Oh, wow. I've read poetry. I was a creative writing major in college when I started. Oh, what? That's yeah. so I sweet. I never thought of that. <laughs> Dr. Payne, do you read poetry? Nope. Oh. Um, yeah, actually the very first time I really, actually one time Dr. Claire and I co-taught a class and we did Memory some lane. beautiful poetry in the class and I realized, whoa, this guy likes poetry. Oh, and really yeah, likes yeah wow. actually, no, uh, I was a little intimidated because I'm I'm much more of a prose person. But mm. that was actually a wonderful experience. Actually, you know, if you teach something, then you learn a lot about it. And so I've been more open in in, in the in recent times. But yeah, no, it's not. My I'm favorite. glad I was able to play a yeah. role in that. Yeah, I think because I get nervous, I don't know how to like it. You know what I mean? There's yeah, like a taste development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. So. Welcome everyone to the I Need to Know More podcast. This week, our week, this week our word is poetry, and we have Dr. Joseph Clare here, fresh off of his lecture on the topic of poetry in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Dr. Beautiful. I, I just this is my question that I always ask students when I teach this, and so I, I I'm super excited to hear your answer. And I know you actually partly addressed this in the lecture, but I just I got to hear it again. I got to hear it again. You got to riff on it, which is why like there's so much poetry in the bible it's like almost like a half of the old testament could be like a huge percentage is written in what we could call poetry why does god like poetry so much to give give us that much of it oh it's so good he must right he must must. like it unless god's like a bad author or it's an accident we don't want to say that as christians right no 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 he he must love it uh he inspired people to write it I don't know. I, you know, I said in the lecture, I'll say it again. We're people of words as Christian. We care about words. We care because God communicates to us through words. We're people of the book, as it's been said, but the kinds of words that we use, they come in different forms. So there's like prose, as Dr. Payne was saying, the kind of stuff we do in essays, there's narrative stories, histories, but then there's poetry and poetry you know, one of my favorite literary critics who I can't remember the name right now says poetry is like, um, it's word. It, they're like words on steroids. It's like exalted. Mm. La- it's like upper language. Yeah. And so I, I tried to get at that in the lecture. It's like words mean things. Isn't that kind of boilerplate? Yeah. Yeah. That's what they do. So when you see the word horse, it points to this thing like a horse in your mind running around galloping, but sometimes they point to two things at once. Mm. So the word it, horse h-o-r-s-e points to this you know hairy animal it runs around your field but it also maybe represents strength or courage or danger or something approaching you know so like how do words have that ability to mean so much and god i think plays with that and says i want to get my meaning across to you people but sometimes you're so bored or boring or out of touch i gotta like wake you up with some spicy words and Mm. that's poetry you know I love it. Spicy words. I could do it forever because it's like, I think we think poetry and we're thinking like Psalms, right? Mm-hmm. Or Proverbs um, or yep. or maybe like there's a poem like in the book of Exodus. It's prose, 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 narrative. And then suddenly it's like, wham, a song. Okay, poem. But 
if you read a, a prophetic book like the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. look at look at how I mean the way that words are arranged on the page now is by modern translators and editors, but it clearly follows a format, and that format was poetry. Mm-hmm. It's poetic utterances by prophets, even prophets when they were speaking in God's name in the first person, like I, the Lord. They're speaking in poetry, like that's the prophetic books are just huge outbursts of poetry. Yeah. Can I give a uh, like a response from someone who hasn't historically mm-hmm. known how to a- appreciate or enjoy poetry? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the reasons why I have found poetry to be a little bit intimidating is because that that heightened language. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes if I don't understand it, then I feel like I'm on the outside of mm-hmm. it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe like th- the Bible does have so much in song. I like songs. I could you know. That that po- that I don't know how music takes the intimidation factor out of it for me, mm-hmm. but maybe there maybe we could talk about a little bit about how we can get over a little for those of us who are intimidated. How can we get over feeling a little on the outside mm-hmm. when we're like this beautiful heightened language? Like I know I need to. It's sort of like. Um, you know, like fancy food, if you're not used to it, you kind of don't know how to appreciate it and mm-hmm. you need someone to help you a little bit. Or, or watching like a fashion runway with models like wearing really disorienting clothing. Yeah, that yeah. still is intimidating. It. I still don't understand that. I don't that. understand yeah. that. It doesn't look but comfortable. But I feel like someone could explain it to me well, and maybe I'd understand uh, a little more. I, but I actually, so since we have a biblical studies expert with that's us, true. I was kind of thinking the same thing, Dr. Bain, because... Okay, so words always take some form to get their content Mm. across, their meaning. You like prose, you said, right? So you like Mm -hmm. an essay. But an essay, which is, let's say it's about justice or something like that, if there's no punctuation and the words are from like a mishmash of different languages, some of which you don't know and it's out of order, that doesn't do you any good. It has to take a certain form, right? There's Mm -hmm. like a beginning, a middle, and end. There's sentences, there's commas, all that. So poetry does the same thing. It gives you clues through the form that it takes that relate to the content and biblical Hebrew poetry. Dr. Doak famously has this structure called parallelism that goes like in lots of different directions. So why, why does the Bible use so much parallelism? How does that relate to the meaning? Yeah. Just to review. And I know you talked about this in the lecture, but like parallelism is like saying a thing and then saying another thing related to that thing. That's the simplest definition. You can get really complex with it. You can say a thing and then say the opposite of that thing. Like Psalm 1, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, happy are those who do this, but the wicked. So there you have that. You also have parallelism where you say a thing and you say another thing which elaborates on that thing, sometimes heightens it Mm -hmm. or maybe elaborates on it, sometimes repeats it. Um, Although the definition of of parallelism as just repeating, repeating over and over again, could could if you just only looked at it that way, you could just think, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like the hater's guide to poetry. Like it's just somebody repeating the same thing over and over again in different kinds of words. In a morose kind of like. Right, right. But actually, usually they're doing it in some way. I actually don't know the answer to that, but I do know that there must be something about parallelism that. Just like the language and the thought is structured around it. Even, by the way, scholars who do parallelism and study in it actually have recognized that there are parallel structures in prose stories, too. Like, mm-hmm. like, like parallelism is just the way that people thought. There's a thing, and what's more, here's another thing. Yep. It has a very balanced kind of structure to it. It allows for contrasting. Here's this, but on the other hand, here's this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get, you get comparison can work really well in that structure. You know, one of my favorite scholars... Um, one of my favorite lecturers, a guy who is um, an, Ag- an Augustinian scholar, mm-hmm. um, because Always Dr. Best. Claire yeah. is an Augustinian scholar too, a guy named uh, Patu Burns. He was 
such a great lecture. And I asked him one time, like, how do you do what you do? Because he could just teach so well. Mm. And he said, this is how I introduce an idea. I introduce it three times self-consciously. So I introduce mm. it one way and then I tell another mm. story. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and then I tell another story that illustrates the same thing. So maybe there's an instruction, right. no, like an instructive I think quality that that's, to I that. I think that's right on. It's, like, it's call and response. You I say think. a thing, now you say a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that structure invites it. We also, by the way, we probably can't divorce an ancient Israel poetry from songs mm-hmm. like they exactly. probably sung a lot of the stuff i like that, that we yeah. that we look at as poetry and we might read you know psalm 23 you know as a beautiful poem or, or we might even read it in the silence of their mind but um you know mm-hmm. people maybe sung these things this comes from a singing tradition and you can memorize it and it's probably you know it's possible that large portions of the torah the written versions we have of the torah from antiquity were not written so that people could like carry a scroll under their arm off to their straw bed or whatever people slept in they were written just merely to fix the form but really you were supposed to it was just an aid to memory that mm. makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense so a lot of the theories and this is like a hot topic by the way in the field of biblical studies particularly the old testament is like when did the israelites start writing how did they write what what are the material conditions necessary for writing and so exactly song. that's mm. what i was thinking too i don't know the the hebrew biblical poetry as well but i know it doesn't have the same kind of rhyming scheme mm. and meter that we find in what we know in english poetry but parallelism probably relates to a kind of oral tradition, right? So oral being right. stuff that was said out loud or oral being stuff you'd hear. Mm-hmm. Psalm 78, which came to mind after the lecture, mm-hmm. starts this way. If you have um, a text there, verse one in Psalm 78, the, the psalmist says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Mm-hmm. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old things that we have heard and known that our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We'll tell them to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and the wonders that he's done. So very much to your point, Dr. Doke, there's a learning element to this. Like there must've been something about parallelism that we think often in children's nursery Mm. rhymes, things that rhyme stick with you. Mm -hmm. And this is a totally, this Psalm actually takes us in a direction I didn't talk about in the lecture. And that is, it's a psalm, it's a poem that gets you to remember what God has done mm. from the past as a way of making sense of the present and giving you hope for the future. And it basically says we as the people of God are in this huge game of telephone from of old where we're passing down, hopefully not garbling too bad, mm-hmm. what God has done through time and that, that that that's part of the wisdom. So often wisdom literature is another term that's associated mm. with biblical poetry. And mm-hmm. it's this idea that in the biblical world being wise had to do with knowing really old stuff Mm. and Mm. therefore we had to like revere the older people among us who maybe knew some of this older stuff that's totally counter to our more modern understanding of wisdom and knowledge which is basically about breaking away from the old and Mm. what's past and so i I think that's an important thing that there's got to be something about memory associated with this Mm. i also think what do you make of this, Dr. Payne, this idea? We're trying to convince you not to like poetry. Okay, yeah, try and convince me. I mean, if prose and narrative is about rationality and argumentation mm. and mm. points and leading a reader to a conclusion, poetry is ecstatic. It's about ambiguity. Mm. They're not always connecting the dots. I'm not saying you couldn't make a rational argument with a poem. You totally could. Or that prose could, or narrative couldn't be ambiguous. It totally can, as the Bible teaches mm-hmm, us repeatedly. Mm-hmm, but... Mm-hmm. The fact that God likes poetry, I mean, think of Jesus in the New Testament tells these parables, right? They're mm-hmm. these ambiguous, they're, they're almost like poetic in the sense that I'm defining it here in this totally bifurcated way. <laughs> in the sense that 
it's like he's telling us these stories in parable, but there's no obvious, there's no obvious message. You have to actually work for it. And poetry does make you work. Even like reading poetry in Hebrew, oh, wow. it's That's- really hard because the vocabulary is clipped. It's often like there are often, by the way, in Hebrew poetry, there are different forms of words that are mm-hmm. sometimes used, sometimes mm-hmm. archaic words. And it actually creates a certain kind of search for meaning that really puts you on the hook as a reader in a way that for prose, you know, maybe the, the prose author is really guiding you. But poetry mm-hmm. is just like, here, take these little breadcrumbs and follow me into this dark, strange place. Well, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. come from a mystical tradition. So, of course, and I know you know that. So you knew that that was a really good, Ooh, a, nice. a good form of know, or- argumentation there. It's almost like you were leading me to a particular... I was, I was- <laughs> Conclusion. Um, I think I'm not here to argue with you about that. I will say, though, I think that that's a great comparison because and Mm -hmm. I think that maybe uh, parables are a great comparison. And those are the stories that I struggle with the most, I think. Yeah, it's hard for me because um, I think they're hard. They're actually hard. They're really hard. One time I was asked to preach on a parable and I was like, how about I pick something else? Mm -hmm. How about because (laughs) because there's just this multiplicity of meaning Mm -hmm. and that that is like a lot to wrestle with. And so yep. I think, I think that is a good comparison between um, poetry and, and parables. There's like a lot there. Exactly. And I think Dr. Doak, that idea of like an ecstatic experience being connected with poetic language, that's really real in the Bible. Think about the most important experiences you've had, the mm-hmm. feeling getting married, meeting your first kid, the day they were born, oh, whatever wow. it is, mm-hmm. what's true about all of them. They're really hard to describe. True. They're really hard to capture in words. And so yep. when you're faced with those kind of like life altering, super saturated, important moments to be really descriptive, you only have a couple paths. So you could on the one hand go. I'd like to do some brain research and see what was going on in my brain when I, oh, hey, things are falling. It's the panel falling. <laughs> down. Like, we're getting ecstatic yeah, in here. Yeah. The spirit's moving. Yeah. We, yeah. God's with you. Yeah, but it's like, what do you just, to get more descriptive, would you describe like the chemistry of your brain neurons to say what was going on? Or would mm. you start to use, let's say, symbolic languages? Would you mm. grab an image? Like, I felt like, I had a flaming tongue over my head or yeah, I felt yeah. like this bush was on fire or I, you know, the, the, the idea is that actually as true as parallelism is, I think there's something going on in poetry in the Bible with images. Mm-hmm. You're using something mm-hmm. else to try to help represent something that feels untouchable or unsayable. Metaphor. metaphor. You know, it's metaphor. in yeah, your it's lecture, um, Dr. Claire, you talked about that experience of meeting your son for mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. time and that... I actually learned something about poetry and imagery from that because I remember the the moment I met my first child mm-hmm. and this, we live in such a weird age where people document everything with like videos and mm. photography and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want anything like that <laughs> mostly because I was just like too vain for that. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'm glad I didn't because I have like this incandescent memory mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. my child mm-hmm. and he was long awaited and it was like this magnificent, beautiful thing, mm-hmm. but I don't, I could never put it into words. I'm struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. I appreciate mm-hmm. that these kinds of like that, that poetry does for us what I can't do right now, what I'm struggling yeah, right. to do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that was Psalm one, you know, to flip back to that from the lecture, it says, un, 
unlike the wicked that Dr. Doak talked about in book one, the parallel, the opposite antithetic parallel here is the blessed, the happy person who's like a tree planted by a stream of water and they're, they're yielding fruit. They've got green leaves, even in a drought and in hard times. And, um, I think, you know, there's two things. One in, in seasons of trial and drought in your life, you sometimes maybe feel like sustained and nurtured by Mm. God in Mm. a way, if you're clinging to his instruction, as the Psalm says, and more broadly about the literature, that, that was what struck me reflecting on it. didn't hit me when I started blurting out Psalm 1 when I met August, but it struck me that I had inadequate words to express my hope for him and mm. for his well-being and like mm. his flourishing over his lifetime. But I wanted to say something like the moment required a word mm-hmm. and it would not right. have been sufficient to say, I hope things go well for you, buddy, <laughs> across your mm-hmm. lifetime, you know, a little slap on the back. Yeah. I wonder if we could turn toward reading a text. I mean, we seem to be talking about Psalm 1. I almost wonder, too, because Psalm 1 is so short. This is just an idea. You could reject it. Yeah. Psalm 2 is pretty short, too. And, and I've heard people say, too, and I think this is a good analysis, that Psalms 1 and 2 are like an introduction to the entire psalm. It's intimacy on the individual level, but then it's it's hugeness on the level of the mm-hmm. king. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we could even just read them, probably like a lot of ancient readers might have read them, not even necessarily with the divisions that we have today, but just like as one long poem. So mm. at some point here, when we, when we switch to saying, why do the nations conspire, we'll be moving into what in today's Bible is numbered Psalm 2. Mm. But actually, we could just read it as one stream does that is that a crazy idea let's sing it <laughs> jk all, all, i'm kidding all at the I'm same kidding. time all with our own melodies uh, no 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 i'm just to the kidding. tune of twinkle twinkle little star <laughs> totally psalms one and two though i think could t- could take us into this and maybe we could just talk about poetry what we see what we don't see the way that language is used mm-hmm. i don't know do you think maybe we could read verse by verse like dr claire if you would kick it off by reading verse one and then dr pan read verse two and then i verse three and then we would just read all the way to the end of psalm two we could uh, go for it let's do it yeah brilliant verse one Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither, and all that they do they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregations of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. 
Kiss his feet or he will be angry and you will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in him. Boom. Wow. So you said, Dr. Doke, this is, could have been in the ancient text without the chapters and verses that we know now, like an introduction to the whole of the Psalms. Yeah. I mean, it's an interpretive move, but you can actually see like the way that we have the happy in in Hebrew, that phrase there at the end, um, 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 at least the way it gets translated, um, into, into English, but that in Hebrew, it's the, it's the word Ashrei. Mm. which is that same phrase. So you have happy is the very first word of the Psalms. The very first word of Psalm 1, 1 is Ashrei, happy. Mm-hmm. And then Psalm 2 ends with that. So it's almost like you could read these two together, but just the intimacy and the individual focus in Psalm 1, it's like you are talking about trees, we're talking about rivers. Yeah, yeah. And then in Psalm 2, it's like the nations are conspiring and it's like so global, mm. but then it comes back to this idea of happiness. And so you know, one could read these and think, ah, you know, maybe they're not. So we have numbers of Psalms now and there probably were ways in the ancient world to divide Psalms, but it may be that our, some of our divisions are artificial. And so there could be reasons to even read these two Psalms together. And I wonder what it's like to sort of rub them, rub them against one another and see what we get. I I was thinking the same thing. You mentioned there's the kind of parallelism that's antithetical where one thing is compared Mm. with the opposite. And that seems to be going on in Psalm one between the righteous and the wicked and the metaphor, the sign of the flourishing tree and the chaff getting blown around. Mm-hmm. Um, that contrast of two ways of life, two paths you could go down. So the Psalms as a whole are kind of inviting you to consider two ways of life. Mm-hmm. Potentially, I wonder how the second, the, what we think of as the second Psalms kind of amplifies that contrast. How do you right. read that? Well, those who write, like there's certain people who are, their nations conspiring against the Lord and his anointed in verse two, I assume that that means the King mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His anointed. Mm-hmm. That word in Hebrew is Mashiach Messiah, literally against the Lord and his Messiah, mm. his one anointed with oil. So it's like you have the nations versus the Lord and the Davidic King, let's say mm-hmm. on the one hand. And then in Psalm one, you have the righteous versus the wicked personal yeah. and cosmic. I thought one thing that I thought was interesting in both of you. So Dr. Claire, you have a small farm. Do you classify it as a farm? A farmlet. A farmlet. A farmlet. (laughs) Dr. Brian Duke, you were, you were, you're from like the heartland. I was raised in the heartland of the upper Midwest. Not a farmer, but around farms. Right. And I'm just struck by all the agricultural language. And for those of us who are not familiar with all of those terms, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like Psalm 1 seemed to have a ton of that stuff. How does that strike you, you know, for those of you who are more familiar i'm from like a like agricultural community as well and a logging community a logging mm-hmm. logging sandy. and berries trees yeah berries. yeah people would Evergreen berry trees gotta be somebody summer. listening to this who's from sandy sandy all right sandy. yes love be. love my hometown um yeah so I, I i don't know i'm sort of struck by the the um I don't, just the earthiness of that mm-hmm. first one yep compared that um, i think that connects with what you're saying earlier, Dr. Payne, about the inaccessibility mm. of, of poetry that I think, um, certainly modern poetry, if you ever cracked your 20th century anthology, you know, it's like T.S. Eliot, you know, famous poet. Yeah, yeah. It's like the symbols about the flaming rose and it's so beautiful, but it's so like, wait a second, what's that? that I, no, that doesn't represent this. That represents the third day of second world war, you know, the mm-hmm. world war two. And it's like, it's so arcane. I think on the one hand, 
maybe you don't have like a farm in your backyard, but on the other hand, the Bible speaking to its accessibility, it's just, it's things that you have seen or known. Even Mm. if you're living in downtown New York city, you've seen a ginkgo tree in its full flourishing glory, you know, even on ninth street or whatever. And I think even the way Jesus teaches by pointing out to things within the landscape that that, yeah, I think poetry can feel alienating, but biblical poetry invites, I feel mm. like, in a certain way by using these really garden uh, variety kind of what things. What do you make you know? of this image, image, um, Dr. Claire, as, as a farmer, one, one acquainted with nature in, in Psalm 1 of the wicked are, for, for, for verse 4, chapter uh, Psalm 1, verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff mm. that the wind mm-hmm. drives away. Yep. What is this? What is chaff and why would the wind drive it away? Mm. Yeah, I think... Th- that's been striking me as uh, we get to the end of the summer and you're moving in the fall and you think about the time of year it has to do with the depth of roots in the contrast. Though the tree seemed, seems to not only have deep roots, but like a water supply, mm. whereas chaff, if you've ever been driving, you know, through the great highways of the West and seen these tumbleweeds going, it's like there's grass there, but there's like no roots whatsoever. Mm. And so if you have shallow roots, as soon as things dry up, you start to see um, how deep the roots of something are. And so I don't know, the the biblical vision here of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked and the chaff and the tree has to do with both the depth of your roots, but also like where you're seeking your nourishment and life. Um, and the righteous person, the happy one, the blessed one is getting that from God. And I, I think there's a few practical pointers in the early Psalm that are worth pointing out is that this, this tree-like person that's green, evergreen is meditating day and night and delighting in the law of the Lord. And we talked about that a bit in the lecture, but that sense of the law of the Lord is not just the 10 commandments or the hardcore prohibitions, but it's the sense of Torah of divine instruction. This is what mm. God wants to say to human beings. And so you've like turned your attention there. You're thinking about it and kind of what we were talking about earlier about how do you think about the Bible? And Dr. Edwards was saying, you need to read it academically and critically and thoughtfully, but also read it for personal nourishment, for growth, to delight right. in it, you know? Mm. Call back from week one there. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, verse two, that meditate on it day and night, there's just a fascinating chapter there in the history of interpretation, which is one fun thing to track with Bible reading is which verses do some groups take literally and which verses do some groups not mm-hmm. the group at Qumran which is to say the group that did the Dead Sea Scroll community mm-hmm. in ancient mm-hmm. Judaism that started living there maybe around 200 BC and lived there even throughout the time of Jesus out there in the desert they were a, an apocalyptic community they were a very strange community in some mm-hmm. ways to us but they were a form of Judaism during that time and they are where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from they, they treasured the Bible of their time that they had and so they had all these scrolls they actually have some of their own sectarian writings, particular to their community, in which they translate this. And mm. you know what they say about what? this? They say that is to be taken literally, and therefore they kind of had someone on duty studying the Torah 24 hours a day, mm. all, the, all the time. Because that's to be taken literally. Day and night. Day and I night. I love that. If you're going to cool. study it day and night, let's do it. You know what I mean? Like, let's study it. What would you say, Dr. Claire, to this? Like, oh, I guess it's almost, I could phrase it like a critique of this psalm. Like, what if a student read this and said, you know, I recognize that it's some beautiful language and we all want to have roots. Ha ha. Yeah. Good, good for me. But like this vision of the world as divided between the righteous and the wicked, it's so polarizing. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, and really that's just how God's going to treat the wicked. They're just like a bunch of junk, junk vegetation that God's going to blow away. Like, is that really the biblical vision of the world? Like, and does this poem have any emotional nuance to it? 
Mm. What if someone said that about wow, this, yeah. this, this poem? Deep question. Yeah. I love how Dr. Doak gives you questions, not to tee you up for success, but like the, <laughs> the deepest, hardest, critical the question. question. You have to just turn it right back at I like him. That, I like that about him because he's searching. I think yeah. he genuinely uh, wants to see yeah. if you can pull it off. And if you can't, I, he'll laugh at I'm you I'm looking later. for knowledge, but if you impute to me these subtle motives, I'll take it because I'll go there. I, I think in an era of hyper polarization, which I don't know, it feels like our culture has maybe moved in. Um, this idea of thinking of oneself as among the elect, the elite, the righteous versus all them sinners out there, it sounds really dangerous and, mm. and corrosive, especially in a very like pluralistic world. Like we live in with lots of different people on lots of different paths. We like the idea that I'm on my own path. You know, this two path <laughs> idea sounds really constricting. I think on the other hand, the Bible, um, has a central theme at it in the old and the new Testament of conversion of one's way of life, um, that you will come to key points in your life where you'll face what, you know, this famous philosopher Kierkegaard said is an either or in your life and everything will depend on which road you go down and the fork in the road. So maybe it's not, maybe not make it feel too climactic or individualistic, but I think the invitation of the Psalms is an invitation to happiness, to blessedness. The very first word, this ashray, this kind of like uninterpretable you know, interpretable Hebrew plural word for things going well. But it says part of things going well for you is going to be a pretty radical decision of the dir- direction and trajectory mm. of your life. And the decision has to be for God. So it's less about the us and them and casting yourself in and others out and more about like, Hey, the life of wisdom is going to have like a really hard either or for you potentially. Mm. (laughs) I, I wonder, I so appreciate that response. And I think especially for students who are just like feeling like they're at a moment of decision. I mean, that's, it's a timeless message. Um, but this is a interesting part, you know, point of our lives, you know, to, to think through those one, one thought that I had, and I wanted to see what you two thought of it, was um, this is a callback to something that Dr. Edwards said, actually, as well, is we have to look at what the whole of Scripture says about wickedness and judgment mm-hmm. and justice. And mm. I think that if we do, then then it, we might, maybe we would reevaluate it a little bit differently because the polarizing world that we live in tends to put like people into certain categories like wicked or righteous that maybe wouldn't even fit in the Bible. Like when the Bible is concerned with like justice has to do with like taking care of widows and making sure poor people have stuff. And, Mm. you know, I don't know. What do you think? I'm not a Bible scholar though. What do you think? Mr. Uh, Dr. Bible scholar. scholar I I think that's exactly right. I mean, Mm -hmm. we always want to be taking scripture in a bigger sense, which is why I think even just starting the Psalms this way, even if you got nothing more out of it, Oh listener, than just listening to us, read it out loud. You know, this is a journey you could actually take mm-hmm. right in the Psalms. Like, and mm-hmm. many Christians for generations have taken the Psalms this way as a journey in song, in poetry, in mm-hmm. prayer. It's like a path you walk on. It's not just like, I think you would be doing yourself a huge disservice if you just like picked out your favorite Psalm and just kind of read it for personal soothing of your life. Like mm-hmm. these Psalms, if you read them all, they're going to provoke you. They will confuse you. They will hurt and heal you, I think in different ways. And so um, I think that that's a good word to like actually, you know, really like dive deeper into this mm-hmm. stuff. And if something's, if something's, if something's weird, if something's strange, like that's an invitation in, um, but you got to get past the barrier of it in order to really get what's, mm-hmm. what's right and what's real. Yeah. Dr. Claire, you've been wonderful today. Thank, Thank you, you for so your lecture much. and thanks for doing so this. So fun. Thank you, Dr. Thank you guys. Mm-hmm.